discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and in this week's programme I talk to Robert Archer, the CEO of Great Panther Resources, who are one of the most interesting silver plays in Mexico. And Dr. Bub, a.k.a. Michael Hampton, is back with a technical look at the markets and a bit of a lesson in technical trading. A reminder that companies who appear on this show do pay a fee to do so, not a lot, but without that fee we wouldn't have a show. And a reminder of our disclaimer that nothing in this show constitutes advice to buy or sell anything. It's just an expression of opinion only. Now, let's crack on with the show. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com I'm sitting now with Bob Archer, who is the president and CEO of Great Panther Resources. They trade on the TSX uh, under the ticker symbol GPR. Their market cap is about 110 million Canadian dollars. Their year high was about uh, $2.20, year low about 85 cents. They're currently trading at about $1.35. Many people say they are their favorite Mexican silver miner. Bob, welcome to the show. Um, why don't you give us a quick overview of Great Panther, what you do and uh, and where you do it? Thanks, Dominic. Um, well, Great Panther is a primary silver producer. As you mentioned, our focus is in Mexico, which is uh, the second largest silver producer in the world and actually has more primary silver mines than any other country in the world. So for a silver producer, it's certainly a great place to be. Uh, we have uh, two mines uh, in production uh, at the moment, uh, one at Guanajuato in central Mexico and the other at uh, Topia, which is in the Sierra Madre in northwestern Durango state. Uh, we have a third project uh, under development uh, at the moment uh, called Mapimi, and it's uh, advanced stage. Uh, we have a, an inferred resource, uh, uh, or I should say now we've just upgraded it uh, to an indicated resource uh, of 22.3 million ounces plus an inferred resource of 6.3 for a total of uh, 28.6. And we're just uh, looking at uh, potentially putting that into production as well. Uh, when do you think we'll see some production there? Well, it's, uh, it'll depend on the economics. We're just starting a scoping study uh, to take a look at that, and uh, depending on what the scoping study tells us, uh, we'll have to decide from there as to how to proceed with the project. Okay, now tell us about your existing production. Uh, what, what, how much is there? Well, uh, at the two mines uh, together in 2007, we just produced uh, 1.34 million ounces of silver equivalent. And uh, when I say silver equivalent, uh, Guanajuato is a silver and gold mine, and Topia is uh, silver lead zinc with a, a very small gold component. So uh, uh, we... Uh, have produced uh, in 2007 uh, roughly equivalent amounts uh, from the two mines, but uh, Guanajuato in particular should grow uh, quite significantly over the next few years, and we're actually uh, anticipating uh, total production in 2008 uh, of about 1.75 million ounces coming from the two mines. Okay. And you, you're currently sitting with about uh, $8 million in the bank. Uh, yeah, that's correct. We have $8 million in working capital. Okay. And uh, the, the production that you currently have, is, is how much cash is that generating you? I mean, are you going to have to raise more cash or...? 
Well, um, we had revenues of uh, about $17.5 million mm. in 2007, and uh, as the production increases by about 30%, and if uh, commodity prices continue to climb, mm. uh, the revenues uh, should be well over $20 million, uh, in 2008. And uh, we're always looking at trying to bring our costs down as much as we can. So uh, our uh, goal has uh, always been to try and achieve uh, a positive cash flow such that we would be self-sufficient and mm. Wouldn't need to go back to the market. Um, obviously, that's something that uh, that you can't rule out. And if uh, circumstances were to uh, uh, dictate to us that uh, we had to go back to the market, then of course we would. Um, but uh, we'd, we'd prefer not to put it that way. Yeah, I understand. Um, and um, tell us who your major shareholders are. How much do management own? Uh, management owns, I guess, about 5% of the company. Uh, our largest shareholder is actually uh, Sprott Asset Management uh, in Toronto, uh, who own about uh, 10% of the company. And uh, a few other major shareholders are funds uh, like uh, Golden Prospect, uh, New City Investment Trust, mm-hmm. and um, uh, a few other scattered funds around uh, Europe, uh, New York, and Toronto. Okay. So there's roughly... Uh, it's roughly about 50% um, uh, of our shareholders are institutional. Okay. And how much is your kind of daily trading volume? Well, um, it's... it's uh Hard to say what a, a normal market is these days, but uh, uh, last year before uh, this uh, credit crunch and things got uh, so volatile, uh, we were typically trading on average about 300,000 uh, shares a day. So the stock is quite liquid, uh, it trades very well, and um, uh, but uh, it's been, we've seen it a lot tighter than that since uh, the credit crunch and uh, uh, things are a lot more volatile now. We can have some days where we trade less than 100,000 and uh, other days uh, on good news where we've traded a million. Okay. I mean, I ran into you uh, at the PDAC last month and uh, you had a big spring in your step and a smile on your face because your stock price had just dumped, jumped up 40% that day. Or was it 35? Mm. I can't remember. Yeah, but tell us like what that. happened yeah. there. Well, uh, we had uh, traded down uh, as low as uh, 85 cents uh, for a while, which was, was really crazy considering uh, all the good things that were happening with the company. And it was purely market related. Uh, but uh, around about that time, we released some uh, deep drilling results from the lower levels of the Wanawato mine. And uh, that is indicating that we are, uh, uh, we're looking at some, some very high grades uh, of mineralization extending down below the old workings, uh, now down to a depth of about 600 meters. And uh, so when we released, when we released those, um, uh, those first drill results, uh, the market responded very well to that, and uh, the share price uh, shot up um, quite significantly. And uh, that particular week, we traded about 5 million shares. And it's held up there. It has, yeah. We had a, a run up. Uh, I guess it, it reached a high of around 160 on that run, and mm. it fell back a little bit. Uh, and then, uh, just in the last week or so, the market's been been fairly soft again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we're we're trading in around that 135 to 140 range. Okay, and. When you, you, you bought Wanawata, didn't you? you That's you, correct. It was a bit yes. of a steal in a... In a we, uh, yeah, the, we bought it off a, a mining cooperative who were essentially facing bankruptcy at the time. Okay. And it, was all, uh, it was producing, though, at the time. It was producing, but only at about 20% capacity, and mm. uh, the grades were fairly low, uh, such that they were effectively losing money at the time. And, uh, of course, silver prices weren't uh, uh, then what they are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, the, as I say, the fact that they were facing bankruptcy allowed us to uh, 
uh, to step in and, and negotiate a, a favorable deal for us. Okay. Uh, and so we purchased 100% interest for 7.25 million U.S. Uh, and uh, we've that's completely paid for now, and there are no underlying royalties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly at Topia, um, we have 100% of that with no royalties on that one either. And as we, as you move forward this year, what what are your plans for the year to to ramp up production in your two existing mines and to move the uh, development project forward? Yes, um, I think the Topia mine uh, will probably remain fairly static uh, for the next year or two as we shift the production over to a, a different part of the mine. Uh, but uh, at Wanawato, we certainly plan to uh, to grow that um, quite a bit uh, from uh, about 710,000 uh, ounces of silver equivalent produced in 2007. We're projecting about 1.1 million uh, to come out of there in 2008. And uh, we're continuing the deep drilling and uh, from that we should see our first 43-101 compliant resource uh, from the lower levels of Wanawato as well. Um, over at our development project uh, at Mapimi, uh, we're continuing to drill there. Our hope is that uh, as we continue to test other targets on the property that um, we uh, hopefully can identify new mineralization that will ultimately let us uh, increase the resource base at mm-hmm. that, uh, on that property as well. And as we go through the scoping study uh, on the one zone that uh, we have uh, defined right now, uh, the La Gloria zone, uh, that will determine uh, the potential uh, economic um, status of, uh, of that particular zone. And uh, it's right beside a highway, so it uh, enjoys very good uh, access infrastructure mm-hmm. and so on. And we're only 100 kilometers from the uh, smelter um, at Mapimi as well. So the economics uh, from that standpoint could uh, look quite good. It's an open pit target. Uh, mineralization starts right at surface and uh, the configuration of the of the deposit uh, is quite favorable for an open pit uh, mm-hmm. mine so uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed uh, but um, it's you know it's a little early days to predict the um, uh, the actual production of that yeah okay so um bob let's just uh, just give listeners a, a quick um, overview of what your background is what, what did you do before you got into great panther uh, well, my background is uh, as an exploration geologist, uh, so uh, I've been in this business uh, since uh, 1977, effectively, uh, and uh, I spent 15 years after graduation with major mining companies like Newmont and Placer Dome, and uh, then joined the junior sector uh, after that, and uh, for the last uh, 12, 13 years, I've been in the uh, uh, in major management with uh, junior companies. And, and do you ever get out there yourself and do some geology, or do you leave it to the younger? Not guys? as much as I'd like to. Uh, I still try to do that uh, periodically, and it's uh, it's always good to strap on the boots and, and pick yeah. up a hammer. But uh, uh, most of the time, I'm uh, involved with the, the corporate aspects of the, of the company now. But uh, but I am one of the and co- have you co-founders. Always, of the always been in, in Latin America, or, or, or uh, no. Um, I've spent most of my career actually in uh, in Canada, okay. and uh, been in the U.S. and then uh, since 1996, uh, I've done a lot of work in Mexico. Now, I mean, Great Panther's a great story, and I own shares in it. What can go wrong? <laughs> um, Boy, I'd like to say that uh, everything that can go wrong went, went wrong last year, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, I guess there, there are always things that... Uh, I mean, that, what are your biggest fears then? 
Uh, the, the biggest fear at the moment would be that uh, commodity prices uh, uh, come back, but I don't really see that happening uh, mm-hmm. for the uh, the near future. Anyways, uh, we've we've put a lot of effort uh, in the last year into turning around the Guanajuato operation in particular. And uh, we really started to see a turnaround in December of 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, the lower grades that we started that operation with, um, and which allowed us to to get going, uh, were were fine for a while. But they did go on longer than we had anticipated. And uh, we brought in some new management uh, towards the end of last year, and they implemented some very strict grade controls and uh, a few other um, uh, a few other controls. That, that have really uh, turned that operation around. And, uh, uh, and so December was, was a, a much better month for us, and then we've seen that continue through uh, the first quarter of uh, 2008, uh, such that we now have uh, four excellent months uh, behind us, and mm-hmm. uh, we've established a, a new trend with higher grades. So uh, I really foresee that, that that's going to continue. Um, so uh, uh, I'd like to think that we've uh, the worst is behind us now, and, and um, but you know there are always issues uh, uh, such as um, uh, equipment problems uh, in Mexico. That's that's a big uh, challenge to uh, uh, for the, the contractors uh, in particular to uh, uh, to keep uh, the equipment going and um, and to maintain uh, good people. That's uh, that's probably the single biggest issue facing the industry as a whole. I was talking to a, a gentleman with a with a, a development project in Mexico last week over the phone and he was uh, initially he was selling to me you know we've got these two drill rigs going and and uh, everything's great and uh, as the conversation went on he kind of went well actually neither of the drill rigs work <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh, that's a common occurrence in Mexico okay. uh, unfortunately uh, as far as drilling goes uh, you know we're, we're fortunate now uh, for surface drilling we've got a very good relationship with um, uh, I guess a Canadian based or Canadian owned mm-hmm. drilling company that are established in Mexico uh, BDW and we've been working with them for several years and they've done uh, almost all of our surface drilling and uh, uh, so they're they're working for us right now and and uh, we don't have any issues there. Our underground drilling is either being done uh, by our own drills. We bought our own drills mm-hmm. for similar reasons to such as you just mentioned. Uh, it was difficult to get decent equipment and, and decent drillers, so we actually had to buy our own equipment and trade, train our own people right. uh, for the underground drilling, with the exception of the, the deep exploration drilling that we're doing at Guanajuato. Uh, that is a contract drill. Uh, but again, we have a good relationship with the contractor there, and um, it's uh, typically working most of the time. Okay. And, and what about the kind of the post-drilling phase and, and the smelting and all that? Is, is that all in place, is that, or is that a problem in Mexico as well? Um, all, all of our concentrates go to Pinolas uh, okay. in uh, Torreon. Um, I guess the biggest issue for us there is that Pinolas tends to have a monopoly uh, mm-hmm. on that uh, in northern Mexico. And uh, I guess... In terms of things that could go wrong, that's always a possibility that uh, uh, they end up with a, with an oversupply and then just start uh, cutting off uh, some of their right. suppliers. Um, you know, and that that would affect not only us, of course, but other companies as yeah. well. So you know, you don't like to be um, uh, tied to uh, to one particular company like that. Uh, so we're um, we're always looking at uh, at other options. And uh, Guanajuato, in particular, we we probably have a little bit more flexibility there okay. in that uh, we may. 
may actually be able to um, uh, to um, process our own uh, concentrate at some point. But uh, we're we're actually undergoing some metallurgical studies there right now to uh, to both uh, improve the the metallurgy uh, the whole process uh, at our plant in Guanajuato, and uh, and also take a look at the possibility of uh, of processing the concentrate and being able to produce a dore on site. Mm-hmm. Bob, let me just ask you one more question as we close. Um, If you had to take a position in any of your competitors, in any other of the uh, Mexican silver miners, who would you go for? Boy, that's... uh... Uh, that's a tough question to answer. Um, there are there are a number of companies that uh, that I like well, and and um, I think for a longer term investment, the the junior silver producers right now are undervalued. Uh, the the market uh, in the last couple of years seems to have shifted its uh, its valuation a little bit uh, towards the companies who have resources in the ground or, or perhaps are just exploring but don't don't necessarily have production and maybe that's just a function of the of the cycles that uh, that every company goes through in in their development mm-hmm. um, but uh, at this particular point in time it seems to me that uh, that the junior producers are, are all undervalued so that's where uh, where I would put uh, I put my money um, mm-hmm. you know outside of Great Panther obviously um, companies like uh, Endeavor Silver First Majestic uh, Exelon Fortuna Silver um, all great companies well run with good projects and and I think all uh, seriously undervalued compared to their counterparts uh, in exploration right now okay and, and I think as as they prove up that business model and show that uh, that the production is working and that they're generating uh, uh, good uh, good profits and cash flows uh, going forward that uh, that those uh, companies should appreciate in value well thanks for answering that question a lot of people avoid it but it's, <laughs> it's a good question to ask and uh, and I think it says a, a great deal about you that you're prepared to answer it like that so thank oh, you appreciate that thanks um, Bob uh, as we close why don't you give out some more information uh, about the company for, for listeners what, what, what's your website and give out your ticker symbol one more mm-hmm. time uh, the website is uh, www.greatpanther.com. Uh, the ticker symbol is GPR. We are listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange main board. And um, all of the information that, uh, uh, that most people need uh, should be on the, uh, on the website. We try to keep it uh, fairly up to date. And there's actually a, a good video on the homepage uh, of the website as well that, uh, uh, that viewers can uh, take a look at and uh, gives a good uh, overview of the company and uh, shows the projects and interviews with senior management and that type of thing. Good stuff. Bob Archer, thank you very much. Thanks, Dominic. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, is with me now. He's in Hong Kong. I'm in London. How are you doing, Michael? I'm very well, Dominic. Good stuff, good stuff. Now, before the interview began, we were talking about uh, a phrase you use or a... Or a um, an expression you use, the OTP. Would you explain to our hallowed listener what you mean by that? OTP is an abbreviation for a technical situation which um, I'm finding increasingly useful when I look at charts. So what is it? It's a once-trod path. 
And what I mean by that is it's a price movement covering a price range which hasn't been seen before. So, in other words, uh, the stock breaks out and it uh, runs up to a certain level. Um, and very often, the once trod path will be retraced. And it retraces back to the breakout point. And uh, at that point, it will often touch the old highs um, and then go higher again. And when it comes back to that kiss it goodbye point, um, which is the old high, uh, it, it's treading again on the same path it was before, and it becomes a twice-trod twice path. So I actually find it easier to talk about an OTP and a TTP, once-trod path and a twice-trod path, than, than it is to talk about, uh, to actually express the full uh, full word. But let's talk about why this is important. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll look at a couple of charts and see where we see OTPs. Um, probably the best uh, example of an OTP, if people, um, and I'll put this on GEI, of course, but if people uh, want to use whatever charting software they have and look at GLD, which is the ETF for gold, um, you'll find something very interesting. If you go back, um, I'm looking at a six-month uh, version of GLD now, and... Um, I think you'll remember that um, we broke out, um, gold did, uh, above um, $850. And that was a pretty important level because that was the high back in 1980. And that was a high that had been in place for, well, 28 years, I think, something like that, a long, long time. And so when it broke out above that level, um, it would be quite normal for uh, for any breakout above that level to require, um, you know, this uh, the price to come back to 850 again. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Uh, gold broke out; it ran up to um, three. Sorry, it ran up to nine, nine, nine ten. I think it was or nine fifteen in in far eastern trading, and then it pulled back all the way to 850. And, uh, again, I think that low was seen in Far Eastern trading. It wasn't seen in uh, New York trading hours. But what you'll find on the charts for uh, – what you'll find on the charts is you'll find the gold price breaking out, uh, GLD did, um, above the old high of 83.63. It broke out to 90.35 and then quickly pulled back to 85.77. That's for GLD. And from that level, uh, the gold price ran up to uh, to 1,000, and GLD ran up to uh, 100.44. And uh, as it was running up, uh, you know, it basically left uh, you know behind it a once tried path, which, which is what you'll see on the weekly charts. And that OTP now has been retraced, and uh, the gold price has come all the way back to. Um, um, 86.05 on GLD and 870 on the gold price. So uh, um, now some people may remember in previous conversations I talked about this and predicted it and said that gold might run up to 1,050 or something like that and actually ran up to 1,030, so that's pretty close, and that it would then need to pull back in an ABC movement. And we've now seen, we've pretty much seen that ABC movement that I was looking for. And um, gold, you know, may have touched um, 
you know, the level it needs to uh, before it starts to move back higher again. Um, ideally, I think in the next day or two, I'd like to see gold retest its very recent low, come back back down to about 870, perhaps just a little bit lower, 860 or even 850. And then I think it will be ready to move higher again. We may well see a thousand before the end of April. Wow, I hope so. Uh, I'm kind of part of me is wondering if it's May 2006 all over again. I don't think it is because of the fact that the run-up hasn't been quite so parabolic, but nevertheless. Well, that's that's been my argument for a long time. When you do look at that GLD chart or you look at the gold chart, you don't see the parabolic move that you'll often see when these uh, gold movements blow themselves out. And, and, and that movement you're talking about back in 2005, that was clearly parabolic. And that took many months to correct. Um, so if, you know, if, if this is another movement like that, then, gee, well, we might see gold move sideways uh, between, you know, 800 and, and 950 or something over the next six months. Um, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I think we're going to see gold back over 1,000 before the end of May and very possibly before the end of April. Okay, and uh, now we had um, Great Panther on the show earlier. We had talking to Bob Archer. I know you're a shareholder on, on uh, Great Panther. Do you have any views on Great Panther? Yes, well, Great Panther is one of my three major silver holdings. Um, the biggest silver holdings I have at the moment um, are, uh, are uh, Great Panther, uh, Silvercrest, and uh, Kimber. And they've all been performing pretty nicely recently, which is awfully gratifying to see at this time. Uh, Great Panthers chart, I think, at the moment is one of the most interesting. I'm just going to pull it up here. Um, the symbol for those who want to look at this is GPR.T or GPR.TO on some systems. And I'm looking at that chart now. And uh, what I see here is um, an important low was made in early February at 85 cents. And uh, from that low, there was a you know doubling of the price very quickly. The price ran up from $0.85 cents to $1.72 in less than about three weeks' time. That's very quick. And as it made that run up, it was on the back of some news. Um, what happened is Great Panther uh, drilled in an area they hadn't previously drilled, which was outside their core deposit, and they got some excellent grades. And um, that uh, announcement is what put the stock price up. And it, on, on its way up, it left behind a gap. And uh, that gap started at about 120. Uh, and the, the stock really didn't trade between 120 and 140 on its way up to 172. Well, what's happened since 172? It's, it's come back in a nice ABC movement, and it's filled that gap. So, um, you know, it kind of left behind, uh, you know, a, a, not a once-trod path, but a, a not-trod path that left behind a gap. And it's come back and filled that gap in a, you know, classic ABC correction. And Great Panther, from, purely from its chart perspective, looks like it's set to head higher. I mean, I think your interview with Bob Archer probably mentioned a lot of the fundamental reasons why this is a good buy. But I certainly like this on the charts as well. 
Good stuff. Now, finally, let's uh, touch on your favourite subject, which is the UK housing market. Uh, we had First Direct announce a couple of days ago that they are suspending all of their mortgages. Um, I think at one stage there were something like 13,000 different mortgage products on offer uh, across the board, and now there are less than 5,000. In fact, one source tells me it's 3,000. If this carries on, there's going to be nobody left to lend any money. Well, the problem for the lenders in, in the UK right now is that uh, they can't make any money um, on, on the mortgage business. Um, basically, um, everyone uh, globally has about as much mortgage product as they want. Um, so um, the banks that, uh, that um, are, you know, previously were happy to lend to you and everyone else at very aggressive rates because they could sell those loans off. They're not able to sell those loans off anymore, so they're having to keep them on their own balance sheets. And the problem is their balance sheets are now under a lot of pressure because they've had to absorb all the commitments they've made. They've had to buy back in some, you know, special purpose vehicles and sieves and so forth. And their balance sheets are really being well strained right now. And they're having to pay a lot more money. You know, LIBOR for these banks has gone up a lot. So they're not really making any money in the mortgages they're holding and they can't sell them off. So um, it's a real problem for them. And, you know, I can understand perfectly well why they don't want to lend anymore. And I think that eventually they will get back in the lending business when, uh, you know, their the liquidity has come a, a bit better. But I don't think it's going to be on the same terms as we saw, you know, six months or a year ago. The days of 90 and 100% lending are over. And I think, in fact, the days of 75 and 80% lending might be nearly over as well. I mean, very probably we're going to have to see uh, people putting up uh, 20 or 25 percent uh, for uh, when they're buying a property for themselves. And when they buy a property, that's it is to live in themselves. But when they buy a property for, uh, for investment purposes, they may well have to put up 30 or 35 percent equity. I'll tell you something that amazes me. And this is people's understanding of, of it's, but what people don't realize is that the government interest rates and the interest rates that the bank set are two completely different things. And even though the government has lowered interest rates to, to try and encourage the banks to lower interest rates, the banks, because of the LIBOR rates, that, that cu cutting of interest rate hasn't been passed on to the punter. So the punters have got high interest rates and those interest rates are rising. Well, that's a really good point because what's what's happening is is the the, the bank administered rate, uh, the Bank of England administered rate is is really sort of their rate, and you know when when everyone's sort of blind to credit risk, you know everyone's paying almost the same as the government pays for its money, um, but when credit risk rears its ugly head again and people are getting very careful, uh, and during times like that. Um, you know, there's a huge spread that opens up between, you know, a good borrower and a bad borrower and a big spread between the governments uh, themselves and, you know, even good banks. And so what's happening is, you know, the banks had, had commitments uh, to their customers at certain levels, but they can't make money on that anymore because they're not able to fund them, themselves as cheaply as they used to be able to. This is the credit crunch. I've got two questions about a credit crunch for you, but the first one, just an observation, 
I know house prices have come down a few, you know, a percent or two, or, you know, they're coming down 0.4% per month or whatever it is, but we haven't yet seen significant falls. But people talk about fundamentals when they invest, but boy, are the fundamentals there for significant falls in the future. Well, you know, this takes a little time because, you know, there are a few buyers around who, you know, you know, believe the estate agents and say it's, you know, they think it might be a good time to buy. Well, it's really not a good time to buy at all. This is, you know, this is the moment when, uh, you know, I think we've all seen the cartoon where the, you know, the roadrunner, whoever, runs off the edge of the cliff and then he hangs there in midair for a while, uh, thinking he's still, uh, you know, on the top of the mountain. Um, and it's not until he actually bothers to look down and realize there's no ground be beneath his feet. At that moment where he realizes there's no ground beneath, that's when he starts to fall. So that's kind of what the market, that point the market's at right now is that, you know, the, the, the buyers, uh, some of them think that, you know, they're still on the mountain. Um, and others are looking down and realizing that there's nothing really to support the price anymore. And they're starting to get a little bit frightened. So, you know, the, 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 you know, the prices are going to fall. And if we look at the U.S., you can kind of see what happened there. I mean, it was a long US, time before they actually yes. really began. Well, you know, I was, looking at some, I was looking at some figures today on this, and they're quite interesting. Uh, the, you know, the, the U.S. market, you know, started falling uh, about 18 months ago. And the first six months or so, not much happened. And, you know, starting about a year ago, um, the prices started to fall, uh, you know, one quarter of a percent or even one half of a percent per month. And, you know, they sort of went on, on like that until last summer when the credit crunch really began, began very, uh, very evident. Um, but it's really been the, the, the speed of decline in the U.S. has really started to pick up in the last six months or so. And the biggest drop we've seen in the U.S. yet it was really in January, and that's the latest figure we have for the U.S., where where prices, and I'm talking about the Case-Shiller Index here, dropped something like 2 to 3% in a single month. I mean, that is a massive, massive drop. And it took, you know, quite a long time. It took all those months before we started seeing this 2 and 3% drop. And what's going on in the States now is the banks are starting to foreclose, um, you know, owners are, are, you know, walking away from their, their loans and giving the keys back to the banks. And there's just a huge amount of supply around right now. And, you know, people, the buyers, are, you know, can see this supply and they're just pulling back. So now that's my theory is that the UK is, you know, slightly over a year behind the US, uh, but catching up fast. Um, you know, we're only going to see those sort of 2 and 3% in a month type drops. We're going to see those probably late this year in the second half in the UK. The, um, there's a lot of bearish fundamentals behind the pound as well, and the pound's been falling like a stone against the euro. And, uh, you know, perhaps we, we should get a little rally. But um, even with factoring in the falling pound, Make a prediction as to UK house prices. How much will they fall? 25 30%, 10%? Well, I think they'll fall as much as they do in the U.S. and then some. So in the U.S. already, I mean, it depends really on what city you're talking about, but we've seen falls of 
you know, I think New York City is probably about the only market that's in single digits, and it's probably only down about two, three, four percent from its high. But across most of the U.S., we've seen drops already of eight to ten to fifteen percent. I think Miami's down fourteen point something percent, around fifteen percent. Uh, that's the biggest drop so far that I'm aware of. Um, so, you know, I think the U.S. is now dropping it maybe, you know, 2 and 3%, you know, not every month, but got some more months of drops like that. So before the U.S. drop is over, I think it'll probably be 30 to 35%. Um, and uh, most of that will be out of the way by the end of this year. Um, my latest guess, I'm on the bottom of the U.S., uh, Market's going to come will be next winter, probably in January or February, um, purely as a guess. Um, and then the UK market might bottom a year or so after that. So I would say by the time this is over in the UK, we're going to see a fall of at least 30%. And uh, my working guess now would probably be 35 maybe 40% down from the top. One last question for you, Mike. One word answer. Inflation, well, you don't have to do one word answer, but a short answer. Inflation or deflation? Both. <laughs> Michael Hampton, thank you very much. Uh, as we close, do you want to give out your website address? Yes, surely. It's uh, www.globaledgeinvestors.com. Anyone can pop along there and post and have your say and look at the posts of the wise Dr. Bub and uh, just enjoy it. It's a great way to meet people. Thanks, Dominic. Um, just one thing, I, I, if you don't mind me just adding to that advertisement a little bit. We've had a rather enormous jump in the number of uh, posters on our gold thread in the last month or so. And uh, what's also happening is we're developing uh, quite a number of new threads in the last week or two talking about um, you know, looking for property opportunities in places like the U.S., which uh, are experiencing those big falls, and uh, places like Malaysia. And uh, no doubt we'll be uh, having threads like that in the U.S., in the U.K. in a year or so. Yeah, very interesting. Mike Hampton, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.